All right, Bizzlecast listeners, welcome to Bizzle's Daily Rebels, where I drop a commentary for an episode of Star Wars Rebels each day. If you want to hear more about how all of this works and where it came from, you should go to the first episode. Otherwise, I'm going to have you queue up the episode and count us into it. I always advise people to put subtitles on, maybe some ambient sound so you can hear a little bit of the music and uh, sound effects. I'm going to count us down three to one, and when I say go, you should hit play, and it will align perfectly with the episode. So thank you so much for listening. Get your media files, DVDs, Blu-rays queued up to the beginning, and I'm about to count us down. All right, here we go. Three, two, one, go. All right, listeners, welcome to Star Wars Rebels. Season 1, Out of Darkness, either episode 6 or 7, depending on how you're counting. Uh, this is the Hera Sabine episode, where they at least start to work out some stuff. Um, it's a little slow, and the stuff that's not just them, you know, working out their issues and developing the relationship is not particularly interesting. Um, but that's the whole point of the episode, is about their relationship, and everything else is to serve that. But what I like about it is that it starts with the predictable Hera saying, I can't tell you everything, and Sabine saying, well, I don't like being not told stuff. That's what happened when I was working for the Empire, and part of the reason why, or the main reason I left the Empire. (coughs) And the episode ends basically by Hera saying, see, you can see why I can't tell you everything, and Sabine, and Hera saying, I need you to trust me, and Sabine saying, basically, I can try. So they make a little bit of progress, but like in real life, not everything is solved in 22 minutes. I mean, in this way, you know, in that way, this is much deeper than, you know, basically all sitcoms and most family dramas out there. Just like, you know, Ezra and Kanan continue to get closer, but then there are very believable things that threaten to split them up. And then when they come back together, they sell it with, uh, with, you know, very uh, feasible solutions or scenarios you may ask Hera's never really wrong she's overly stubborn occasionally but she's right here that it's safer for Sabine not to know everything in the episode with her father where everyone's wowed by his heroic stories and she says don't trust him it's right that she can't trust him Um, and as soon as she her dad learns how to trust her she immediately gives them a big hug, and they're on the same page. Hera's a worrier, but when you're one of the leaders of the Rebellion, you have every reason to be a worrier. There's a reason why there's a sadness to characters like Mon Mothma and even Princess Leia. You know, Leia's usually too busy fighting to openly you know, worry about the big picture that we see in the movies, but we know that behind the scenes she is. There's a new book that just came out by Claudia Gray, who's basically the best, by far the best writer of uh, can- new Star Wars canon. She's written the two best books, Bloodlines, which I'm in the middle of, which is about uh, Princess Leia five years before The Force Awakens, showing that Leia is a deep thinker, but also a doer, which helps her deal with her worrying. And the new book is, you know, technically a young adult book, but everyone loves it, called Leia, Princess of Alderaan, is when she's 16. Um, and she's learning to deal with the responsibilities of being a princess, the daughter of a senator, and the secret leader of the rebellion. So, Hera, if we're going back to Firefly, Hera would be a mix of Zoe and Mal. She's the captain-like Mal, 
but she's got Zoe's attitude and, uh, you know, single-mindedness. She also has some Inara in terms of being complicated. Haven't talked about the fact that she occasionally calls Kanan love, and they're finally exploring their implied relationship in the final season. I'm assuming, you know, whatever is there between Ezra and Sabine romantically, if anything, we'll see in the final season. Zeb and Chopper always have each other. I think Zeb's gonna die. I hope, but part of me hopes that he ends up on the, on, not Lasat, whatever the new planet is that they discover in season two, where his people have found refuge. It's also important because Sabine is a kid, and they want to establish that she's more towards Ezra's age and maturity level than these guys. But the fact that she matures so much in this episode, and mostly is a good soldier, and doesn't really blow up again until the previously mentioned Darksaber episode, but that's just because it's so intense, the training, and she's dealing with her past and stuff. She ends up being more mature than Kanan in a lot of situations following this. This is the only whiny Sabine, which is maybe why it's hard to watch. It's also Hera being her harshest to one of the crewmates. But, uh... Compared to the last episode, I much prefer this to uh, the previous episode, Breaking Ranks. And unlike Breaking Ranks, where I always forget a lot of it because it's not that memorable and sort of the structure is weird. And it's like, a, you know, mostly action set pieces. This is all character building stuff. And so, while I always forget a lot of the specifics of the dialogue here, I'm always excited to come back to it and experience it. Sorry, kid. These three are always fucking with each other. Hera also has some Kaylee in her, uh, even though she's not the engineer, but just how sweet and loving she is and motherly. Anara and Kaylee are sort of the joint mothers of the Firefly crew. People compare Zeb to Jane, but he's such a better person than Jane. I mean, it's not even close. He is the muscle, but he's much smarter. And this is mostly just getting rid of stress, this stuff. And I love how, you know, whenever, whenever uh, Ezra's fighting with Zeb and Chopper, he's smiling. And here's all of them being afraid of Hera. <laughs> yeah. And they fuck up, and then they're really scared of Hera later. Oh, he says dismantled. I never noticed that. Let's go. Great response. Like I said, so much is said in the faces. You know, one of my criticisms of Rebels, which isn't a criticism of Rebels, is that, you know, Disney such Pixar still hasn't completely figured out how to do lip synchronization with speaking. And some characters look better than others, and some words and syllables and so forth look better than others. In video games, it's much better. But I think they just figured it takes so much time and money to get it right, and they have to churn out so many episodes. If they can just approximate it. Okay, so this is Fulcrum. I wonder if this is really Ashley Eckstein's voice. It doesn't sound like her. Like, when we, when we hear uh, Kalis as Fulcrum in season three, you can clearly tell it's David Oyelowo, but, it, but that's on purpose, because we know that it's Kalis before they do. 
you know, it is important for Sabine as you know, serving as the audience to learn that there's a difference between the secrecy of the rebellion and the secrecy of the empire. Secrecy of the empire is to dominate and control. The secrecy of the rebellion is to protect one another. That's why they Hera is the only person that knows that they're operating as a rebel cell essentially this whole season until they don't have a choice but to join the larger fight. But the cell keeps growing, and then get Mon Mothma in season two, and then we get much more of the fleet, and much more of the fleet, and that's what Grand Admiral Thrawn is waiting for. Grand Admiral Thrawn in season three waits for the rebel fleet to get as big and centralized as possible. So, this whole thing with these monsters, isn't that interesting? You know, it's sort of a typical, like, horror thing. But, because they come back here on purpose to use the monsters as defense and have Ezra, you know, control them and then bring up the ridiculously huge big boss monster, uh, which is awesome a few episodes down from now. Since it's all in the same season, I'm sure they were planning to come back here. And so, so coming back to this, it sort of makes more sense. I mean, this is the biggest problem with the episode, is the you know what you need to know, I want to know more, no you don't, yes I do, is basically the whole episode. But this is the important backstory, you know. It's hard when you've seen the episode so many times, in so many different orders. The, the, like, I obviously know her whole history about being a Mandalorian, who was one of the top cadets, and she was a, she was a weapons expert who designed a bunch of weapons, that I think we're going to find out what the weapons were, and then they were used against Mandalore, and so... She's a traitor to the Empire, she's a traitor to her people, all the pressure that she's facing. And that's all feeding into this. And that's why when they join, she's saying, right, I need to know this isn't all for nothing. Once they join the larger rebellion, it it all clicks for Sabine, and she never really has a crisis about this. Because she is on the inside at this point. We, Kanan, know what we're doing, so they know. Kanan's reaction when they meet Ahsoka is kind of nonplussed. I'm always trying to look at it, and I'm always expecting Kanan to be either like very happy to see her, or very shocked, or both. With the Ahsoka reveal at the end of the season, so we'll have to analyze when we get there, whether we think that Hera and or Kanan knew that Fulcrum was Ahsoka, or even knew who Ahsoka was. It seems impossible that Kanan wouldn't know Ahsoka, because they were in some of the same battles in the Clone Wars, according to the new mythos. By the way, Kevin Kiner taking the John Williams soundtrack, but doing a whole new thing with it is just brilliant. And there, he's very restrained using the central themes, the Imperial theme, the uh, main Star Wars theme, the Jedi theme. We hear the most, obviously. Uh, the Rebel theme. Da, 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 da. He does variations on all of them, just like in Rogue One, we got variations on all of them, or on some of them. What's great is, even though we only have one Leia episode, and as I said earlier, it's not the best episode, and so we do get the Leia theme, he does use parts of both the Leia theme and the Han Leia theme, just because they're so beautiful. 
in stuff not having nothing to do with Han and Leia, obviously, but having to do with, you know, deep emotion or romance or sadness and all the things that it represented. I often say that the uh, the Princess Leia theme by John Williams is probably the most genius character motif, um, it's re- extended theme ever created. But the Force is the most haunting and addictive. If that makes sense. Yeah, there's a big difference because the extended Leia theme is like many minutes, whereas the Force is essentially like 16 bars or 32 bars. But Kevin Kiner, the composer um, and conductor for the full-on orchestral music of Rebels, which certainly helps with the epic scale, again, is able to take bits and pieces to make it sound familiar, but it wouldn't make sense to, like, let's say there was a romance scene between between Kanan and Hera, which I'm hoping we'll get in season four, at least in dialogue. It would make sense that... uh, I love that Seb listens to, like, rock music. He listens to, like, ambient music. Normally, that would be a no-no for Star Wars universe, and that's why, like, the cantina bands and stuff are so bizarre. They don't want it to sound like anything like our music, but for the sake of this show and trying to build character and, and for kids to be able to identify with it, it makes perfect sense. And who cares? I mean, again, this is an... Even George Lucas says, you know, this is the journal of the wills. This is an interpretation of an ancient myth. So, if the ancient myth says they were listening to the popular music of their time, then, and like just like they speak English, it would make sense that they'd be listening to pop music. So there. I'm just trying to see if they list Ashley Eckstein as a uh, member of of the cast during these episodes. Oh yeah, they do. It says uncredited as the voice of Fulcrum, so they knew the whole time. I'm sure they didn't add that to IMDb till later. It's awesome. I love that you can do that. There's so much... You know, with all the camera phones and videos and leaks and tweets and anonymous tweets, you know, they're able to keep all this under wraps is crazy. You know, one of the big jobs of the lead producers and directors is to compartmentalize stuff as much as possible to limit the the leakage of information. We know almost nothing about The Last Jedi other than what they've told us. And with a crew of hundreds or thousands overall, it's quite a feat. But Hera does what she always does. She doesn't always get along, and she doesn't, you know, always want to reveal the information. But when it comes time to solving problems, she uh, defers to the expertise of her crew. And this is partially how she wins Sabine's trust back, is by letting Sabine completely take over this operation. She would have anyways, but the way she does it, You know, she doesn't question Sabine. She does exactly what she says. She does the manual labor. 
Leadership 101. Lead by example. I mean, that's it. I mean, you, the, you know, the, the golden rule, the only thing you need to know about leadership, and there's tons to know, but if you just start with the principle of leading by example, being the first one in, knowing that people are following your example, and acting accordingly, man, the creature designs and rebels are awesome. I don't know why, like, the Wrath Tars and Force Awakens or the Borgallet, uh, you know, creature mind of uh, tentacle creature in, in Rogue One, poor Bodhi Rook, just don't look that good. I think they try and make the skin look too realistic. They should go, you know, for something more like this, where it's not like a pinkish skin, more like a hide. So this aired November 3rd, 2014, initially. Also, the size of guns make no sense. I do like that the Stormtroopers' rifles are fairly small for the most part, and actually the First Order Stormtrooper guns in the new movies are even smaller, which would make sense in advanced technology. But Sabine and Hera basically only use pistols, and they seem to have as much effect as the giant, you know, rifle that Zeb has. Also, the fact that they can that Ezra, the Kated, can lightsaber block the lasers of TIE Fighters is a little hard to believe, but whatever. Hera is voiced by Vanessa Marshall, who's awesome, and is... Her and Freddie Prince Jr. are both ginormous Star Wars fans, more so than any of the other cast. They're of the generation where they saw it as kids. Tia Serkar, who plays Sabine, and uh, Taylor Gray, who plays Ezra, you know, are, are younger than me. I assume they grew up on the prequels. I don't even know if they were Star Wars fans before this. But Hera has to do so much exposition about places and names and technologies and ships. It really helps. I, I didn't know this until after I'd seen the series a few times, but it really helps sell. Hera, that the, the voice actress, is, you know, knows everything about Star Wars, and she goes on the podcasts, and they don't even get to see the episodes until they air, and she didn't know, you know, they don't get any spoilers of the movies, so, you know, she was on um, some of the podca- podcasts after The Force Awakens, and she was just so emotional about the whole thing. And this is what's so great about the Star Wars extended universe, uh, not not the EU, but the, you know, the the universe of people, the human universe behind everything, is that the actors, the voice actors, the directors, producers, uh, technicians, artists, are all at least as nerdy as us fans, if not even more so. It's not a job for them. It's a way of life. And so they don't go to these conventions like some stars do to just, uh, oops, Sabine saves them. To, you know, for press and media marketing purposes and to bask in, in their glory and the attention of fans, but because they, they just love being a part of it and part of the community. Is this where he, he, he says something to Sabine and she's like, don't look too far into it. That might have been from the first episode. I think he might already be over his, his fixation. You know, the thing is, is it, 
<laughs> Ezra worships Kanan. I mean, Ezra wants to be a Jedi to save his friends, and because he worships Kanan, and he loves them, and he loves Kanan, and, and so that's, you know, that takes the place of romance. To go back to the idea of not having attachments, not getting married, or having girlfriends or boyfriends or whatever, you should never be forbidden those things, but it, you know, it's possible that spiritual practices, belief, um, you know, and things like training to be a Jedi are just so all-consuming that it, it takes all of your energy for that hard to put into romance, which in between Hera's responsibilities and Kanan's responsibilities, they're never really able to explore anything, which is why it, I think, you know, probably close to Kanan's death in season four, my prediction, no spoilers here, we know Hera lives is when they'll finally, you know, deal with it, just like Neo and Trinity or whatever. I don't own any of the Blu-rays. You know, I read a lot about the shows. I love hearing about the big ideas, and I love hearing from the actors and the producers and Dave Filoni and everybody. But uh, look how forgiving Hera is here. But I don't, I, I don't like watching deleted scenes usually, especially for my favorite shows. I was going to say even for my favorite shows, especially for my favorite shows, because they were cut for a reason. Now, if there's an extended cut of a movie and people say it specifically, it's better, you know, like the extended Wedding Crashers, extended 40-year-old version, usually comedies, the extended Anchorman, you know, you have to watch those versions, the unrated versions. But for these kinds of shows where they have to cut to 22 minutes, I have to think they probably go anywhere from 25 to 35 minutes and then cut stuff out. But it never feels like there's missing sections. But it also never feels like they only get 15 minutes and then they have to have filler. I'll talk about the notion of filler episodes later. I don't really believe they exist. Certainly not until season two or even season three are there episodes that I would call straight filler. But in the first season, season and a half, there's so much character building that needs to be done. And every single one of these episodes, even the last two, which haven't been as strong, had so much character building that you can't... From my perspective, they're absolutely necessary and I love them. And I'll watch them a million times. Thank you. May the force be with you. And I will join you for the next episode. Bizzle out.